Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Social Work Radio with me, your host, Vince Peart. Once again, and always, I'm joined by my co-host, Tilly Baden. Tilly, my friend, how the devil are you? How have things been since you were last aboard the good ship SWR? Hello, everyone. Um, Well, an update from last week. On last week's podcast, we talked mm-hmm. about me taking some time for self-care and, and looking after myself and not working. So I, I took your advice, Vince. Nice. I went, I decided one evening I was going to not well, turn off my laptop, put my phone in another room so that I was just going to sit there on the sofa and watch some Netflix with a glass of wine. So I logged on to Netflix chose a program that I thought looked interesting the night agent poured myself a glass of wine and it it was a political drama about FBI and the White House American drama It, it was it was very good but so good or so addictive that I ended up watching the entire series in one sitting so ah. it's 10 <laughs> 10 episodes wow and so that's just over nine hours and I started wow. this in the evening and just after half past four in the morning wow. I realized that I'd finished the series I had to be up for work in two hours and yeah oh that, my it, God. self-care just didn't it wasn't very self-care worth of me to deprive myself of sleep and then have to get up in two hours to do you to to uh, you burnt yourself out with self-care I did. I did. See, self-care is dangerous. Uh, Netflix is dangerous. I shouldn't have done um, it. Maybe one of those is right. Maybe Netflix. Maybe the, the latter is right. Netflix is dangerous, but self-care is dangerous. Do you know what I think it is, Tilly? I think it's that long since you prioritised your own self-soothing needs that you've forgotten how to do it. You need to be eased back into it. You need to be... I do. You're back on the saddle for the first time. You need to... Uh, you need a tender and gentle hand to ease you back into the way of self-love. <laughs> oh, gosh, don't make it weird. But no, I should have probably chosen a Netflix series that wasn't quite so thrilling. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't even amazing. It was just OK, but it was quite addictive. And Netflix is so dangerous when it has that continue watching and you don't have to like press anything on the remote. It just does it automatically. And before you know it, several hours have gone by or just over nine hours in my case, <laughs> um, where I realised I hadn't moved. And, Tilly, yeah. are, you, are you happy you did that? Are you glad of it? No, not really, because the next day, well, the same day of work was incredibly hard because I was really tired and no. looking at a computer screen all day wasn't particularly great. So I blame you. Well, I don't really. I blame myself and having no self-control. But that was my attempt at self-care. It's a start. It's a start, okay? So more of the self-care, but less of the Netflix binges. Deal? I think that's a good deal. Do you know, I, I, I can't say much about telly because I've, I've actually watched a TV series over the past week, which is useful. How, I mean, how often yeah. do I watch telly, Tilly? When do I ever talk about watching telly? I never, I rarely never, watch. Never, never. Exactly, exactly. But there was, a, there was a series on Amazon Prime that I was really looking forward to because I loved the book. I read a book about three years ago called Daisy Jones and the Six. Have you heard of it? Have you read the book? Have you seen the TV series at all? 
Um, no, but it's on my things that I want to read and things that I want oh, to watch. I've God. read other things by Taylor E. Jenkins. Um, so I, I, I've already read that, and I read it. Do you know what? It was three years ago. It was the summer. Um, it was the summer of lockdown, and that's what I got back into reading. And you know, I've kept it. You know, we talked about lockdown on last week's show, but. I didn't get to this point, but there were a lot of things that lockdown allowed me to do personally. It really, really helped me connect with old hobbies and sort of reflect on myself. And it, it was a lot of personal growth that I did do in lockdown, which continues to this day. So I got back into reading big time, set myself a target to read a book a week, and I have kept that target up for three years now. So I read Daisy Jones and the Six, and you know me, Teddy, it would be fair to say that I'm perhaps not the most emotional of people at times. Would that be a fair reflection of me? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, Vince. Uh, I'd never uh, say that about you. <laughs> I am a stoic character, I imagine most people would say. Um, but that book, I'm not ashamed to admit it, that book moved me to tears with its ending. And I, I adored it. I thought the book was... It had so much that I wanted. It had romance it had love triangles it had mystery it had rock and roll it had sex it had drugs it was set in the 70s just everything I, was just, I loved it I adored it and it ended in such a way that it moved me to tears and then I heard at the time that Amazon were making a TV series of it and I was like I have to watch this I have to watch it and yeah, it released a couple of weeks ago. So I waited until all the episodes were out so I could sort of watch it in a stream. And I've watched it over the past week. Unlike you, Tilly, I haven't been watching it into the early hours back to back. I've been watching it off my lunch break and I've been catching a little bit of about eight o'clock or so before bed. Uh, there was one night that I couldn't sleep actually. I did watch a couple then. But Tilly, it's absolutely superb. And again, even though I knew the ending it still moved me to tears the way it ended. It was amazing. So I highly recommend it, Tilly and listeners. You know, I never recommend TV, but if you do have the opportunity, Tilly and listeners, do check out Daisy Jones and the Six. It is unbelievably good. In my opinion, it is amazing. Oh, I'll, um, yeah, definitely get on to watching that because I read um, the, seven Hu- no, the Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo by uh, Taylor Rajayne. Taylor Reed Jenkins. God, I can't speak tonight. Um, yes, and it was it was a really good book, so I'm sure I will enjoy it. Do check it out. And as uh, this weekend, I uh, I rented a camper van. Oh, you just rented, not bought. No. Okay. I've got to be honest with you, Tilly. Um, I'm not as hot. I've fallen out of love with the camper van idea. Oh, thank goodness for that. I mean, you finally seen sense. Well, you know, I'm like Tilly. You've you've known me. You've known me many years now. You know that I get very, very passionate and very excited about things like a new puppy, and then suddenly, like a child, I go broad. I, I grow bored of my new toy, and I lose interest just like that. It's happened with the camper van. I was fascinated, fascinated, fascinated for about three weeks, and one day I thought, no, I'm not interested anymore. So what I did this past weekend. I rented a camper van. Because uh, I had the children, my uh, wife was away for her ninth or tenth birthday celebration. Can we just away- clarify that you mean ten in one for one birthday, not ten? Oh yeah, no, yeah, yes, that, that, yeah. Sorry, listeners. <laughs> so, that that, yeah. came across really no, no, no. strangely then. So, oh no, so no, no, no. Yeah, it's, yeah. Just, just to, just to clarify, my my wife turned forty last month, and she has essentially had a festival of celebrations for her birthday, where she organised many different nights out uh, with different sets of friends. 
And I think that the last one, last weekend, when she went to Manchester with uh, two of her oldest friends, that was either the ninth or 10th birthday celebration in total. But I think that's it. I think I think we've come to the end of the birthday bonanza. She doesn't like me pointing it out, and I think she would be mightily offended that I'm discussing this to our thousands of listeners. But I don't know, Tilly. I, I think it's a bit extreme. Would that, is, is this worthy of me pointing out, or am I being am I pointing out something that's obvious? Do you know many people have had 10 individual birthday celebrations over the course of around a seven-week period for a birthday? Or is that is it just me, or is that a bit unusual? I mean, you're probably asking the wrong person because I'm quite introverted. So but no, but do you know other people, though? Do you know well, other people have done that? No, I don't. I don't. No, I don't but either. I'm sure... I, I mean, yeah, good on your wife. I think she she sounds like a bit of a legend, I think. So, um, yeah. She's certainly, judging by the Facebook pictures, she's certainly been having a jolly good time. And but I, and I, I've had a good time with the kids. So this weekend when I was left with the kids, um, I uh, rented a camper van and we went to a local caravan park with my mother and stepfather. And we had a jolly good time. And it, do you know what? It's it sort of, it allowed me to scratch the camper itch, but without having made a significant commitment, both personal and financial, to an idea that only ever existed in my own mind of the social, the traveling social work nomad. So it was I the mean, kind I'm, of the best I'm glad. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm glad that you came to that realization. I think yeah. for for personal and financial reasons, I think that's mm. a, a good decision to park that one for now and stick with a normal car we have we have just to know you remember the dilemmas i had over the car as well telling i have vehicle i dilemmas. do i know the the <laughs> um the, the midlife crisis of the still going well after three 40. years though i've had that car for three years and touch wood it is serving me well um well telly i didn't really want to have to talk about this this week And, of course, we would much rather talk about things that are brighter and lighter and we can find a bit of joy in. But the social work landscape has been dominated by one story and one story only this week. So, Tilly, it was with a heavy heart that I ask you, are you ready to discuss the tragic murder of Finlay Borden? It has to be done. We will do our best to do such a sombre topic justice. So, guys, um, I think more or less all of you will be aware of this story. Um, For our American listeners and other people further afield from the UK, from whence me and Tilly Hale, you will have seen this story on uh, Social Work World and Social Work News Facebook groups. Um, they've been seen by tens and tens of thousands of people. And there's been a lot of comments from uh, American listeners, Australian listeners, Canadian listeners, and other people from further afield. Just to briefly recap the story, though, um, Finley was 10 months old when he was murdered on Christmas Day in 2020. He had only been placed back into his parents' care 39 days prior, his parents being Father Stephen Borden and Mother Shannon Marsden. They were found guilty of Finley's murder last week. At the time of his death, Finley was found to have 130 injuries. Those included 57 breaks to bones, 71 bruises, 
and two burns on his left hand. One was from what is described as a hot, flat surface, and the other is from what is thought to have been a cigarette lighter flame. He collapsed after suffering cardiac arrest at the family's cluttered and filthy terraced home in Holland Road, Old Whittington, with feces found about his bedroom following investigations. Paramedics were called to the property in the early hours of Christmas Day. Finney was taken to hospital, where he was later pronounced dead. It was a very, very difficult trial and one that was incredibly difficult for me to report on. Um, as the judge, Mrs. Justice Tipples, gave her verdict, four jury members were in tears and all were excused from taking part in jury service again for life due to the distressing nature of the case. Now... Finney was known to children's services. He was taken from his parents' care shortly after he was born in February 2020. But later that year, he was returned via the family courts following an eight-week transition, despite social workers asking for a six-month period. In those 39 days between Finney being returned to his parents' care and his murder on Christmas Day, the court heard that mother and father worked together to keep professionals away from Finley to protect each other and cover up their serious violence. Their efforts to disguise what they were doing to Finley included cancelling health visitor appointment two days before he dies, telling children's services for an unannounced visit that Finley might have COVID and refusing to let them in. A social worker last attempted to visit Finley two days before his death but again, they were refused entry to the home. During the course of the hearing, the court heard that mother and father were regular and heavy users of cannabis, who prioritised money to spend, getting money to spend on drugs over their son's care. In the post-mortem, toxicology tests were undertaken at Finley and showed that he had cannabis in his blood, indicating that he must have inhaled smoke within the 24 hours before his death. The court were also shown text messages sent from the couple's shared mobile phone. In one of the messages, uh, the author said, the little one had kept me up all night with an added message, I want to bounce him off the walls, ha, ha. I'm not going to go on too much further, Tilly, because the uh, the further details, um, it just goes on. It's horrific, to be perfectly honest. If anybody does want to look at those full details, you can find the news stories on mysocialworknews.com. Um, where do we even begin with this, Tilly? I mean, we, obviously, we can't speculate or comment on specifics until this serious case review is done. We obviously don't know the full circumstances of how and why exactly it was deemed that he should return to parents' care. We don't know who pushed for a shorter rehabilitation period. We don't know whether that was on behalf of parents or perhaps it was the children's guardian. Perhaps it was the courts that agreed to that. But what we do know is the social worker involved with this matter had pushed for a six-month rehabilitation period. Before we start to reflect on parallels with other infamous cases, Tilly, is there anything you'd like to say about Finley's story alone? 
Yeah, there are a few things. I suppose the first place to start is just rest in peace, Finley. It's always heartbreaking when there's a child death and it's in these circumstances, life was taken far too soon. So I think our thoughts and, and prayers go with, with Finley and the family who continue to love him because um, he did have it by the signs of it he had extended family members who who were equally as as horrified as the members of the public about what had happened um it's another case where we've got a child who's been brutally murdered at the hands of their parents and just well before we we started this podcast tonight I was just scrolling through some of the comments on social media I wanted to try and get a feel for the public of what the public opinion was because I think it's quite easy for us to sit in an echo chamber is on social media these days where we're only seeing content that we're likely to relate to because that's the nature of algorithms so um I wanted to try and get a perspective of people who aren't in social services or or social work or health and care professions because I think that I know what a lot of social workers are saying about it we 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 are social workers we we know kind of the the thoughts and feelings around that um I think one of the things that has struck me on looking at through some of the comments on social media is the support for social workers more than I was expecting I mean inevitably there is hundreds if not thousands of comments slating social workers social services saying why didn't they do something how did they ever allow this to happen equally there's a huge number of comments um about people saying well blame the family that blame the the mother and father who did these heinous acts and of course that would be where i sit this is this is two people that brutally killed their son and there is no excuse for, for their behaviour at all. No amount of tragic circumstances or traumatic upbringing excuses anyone to lay a hand on an innocent child. But I think what what did strike me through the comments is that, that people were saying, they've, they've obviously picked up in these news stories that this wasn't the social worker's decision. This yes. was... Um, a court-ordered judgment that that, that, that the child, Finley, had to go back to the care of his parents and the social worker had advocated against this. So I was seeing quite a lot of sympathy through these comments on social media and a lot of people that had no apparent connections to, to social work or health and care were saying stop blaming social workers read the judgment before you mm. jump in and criticize social services actually this was a judge's decision and why isn't the judge being held to account and obviously then we get that the family courts are atrocious and judge bashing and I don't want to do that because I don't want I don't know the full circumstances and I'm certainly not going to sit here and say that the judge should have made a different decision based on the evidence that was in front of them at the time. Who knows? We haven't got the full details. We can't. Well, you don't know what was put to the judge. This could have we been um, this. This could have been the guardian's plan. Exactly. Exactly. So well, we can't speculate, and I don't want to blame any of the professionals or the judge in this case. Yeah. But it was quite heartwarming to see 
people that seemingly had no connections with social services defending mm. social workers um in across all different media streams as well comments were on left wing right wing central um news outlets um because that obviously taints some of the, the comments sometimes but yeah i i was quite heartened to see that people were sticking up for social workers and saying that this wasn't their decision um and actually we need to wait for more details so that was a bit of a silver lining to a, a horrendous horrendous situation does the name ben butler or the name of his daughter ellie butler ring a bell with you tilly it does indeed yes i remember this story so this case has echoes from uh, a similar circumstance seven years ago now. This is how long I've been blogging about social work, because I remember writing about this at the time, and I got a lot of flack actually at the time, because people, well, I said people, one or two people were criticising me because I, I referred to this man as a monster. And I was thinking, well, if you can't refer to somebody who murdered his own daughter as a monster and I'm not sure what you should refer to him as. But this story, listeners, uh, that I'm discussing, it basically involves a, a man called Ben Butler who was jailed for life for murdering his six-year-old daughter, Ellie. Now, Ellie had been taken from her father's care, and she was placed um, with a grandparent. Uh, however... Mr. Ben Butler fought, fought through the family courts to absolve himself from the allegation that he'd assaulted his daughter, which is the reason she was taken from his care, and he even went so far to appear in the national media. He actually appeared on a British morning national television programme called This Morning, where he spoke about how terribly unjust it was that the family courts and social workers had taken Ellie from his care. Ellie was returned to his care and murdered around a year later. I think it was 11 months to be exact. Ben Butler was jailed for life. Um, it has eerie, eerie similarities to this story regarding Finley Borden. And that what you've had in both the Ellie Butler case and the Finley Borden case, Tilly, is you've had social workers who have evidently done the right thing by removing children from their parents' care. Obviously, Finley's, it happened as a newborn. Elliot happened when she was a toddler. You've then had parents who have fought, fought tooth and nail via the family courts in order to say no local authority have got it wrong the social workers have got it wrong here and they have successfully convinced and this is why i don't blame i don't blame i'm not blaming anybody here. i'm not blaming the social worker i'm not blaming the guardian i'm not blaming the solicitors i'm not blaming the judge for this one it's the parents who are to blame here they're the ones that have done this but you've got parents in the case of these two parents and you've got parents in the case of ben butler who have successfully lied and advocated for themselves to the point where people have believed that, yeah, they're no longer a risk. Children have been placed back into their care. Ellie Butler was murdered 11 months later. Finley Borden was murdered 39 days later. How on earth 
can you account for evil like that, Tilly? How can you mitigate for parents who would go to such extent that they would fight through the family courts under significant stress, under significant duress, fight to have children back in their care that would then go and murder 39 days later in the case of Finley Borden and 11 months later in the case of Ellie Butler. How do you mitigate for evil people that could do such thing to their own children? You can't. And I think that's a sad fact of life that not just social workers, but the general public need to come to terms with. There are some bad people in this world that will do bad things, no matter what people do to try and stop them. We can't ultimately be held accountable or responsible for the actions of people that that manipulate the courts and the social workers and people around them. They will always, always continue to, to do bad things. That's just a fact of life. Yeah. Let's discuss, let's discuss the court's recommendation here because... You and I both know, tell you what, what, this is what the general public probably don't know. And I can't blame the general public in inverted commas, because before I was a social worker, I was a member of the general public and I had no idea how it worked either. But most people who aren't connected to social work or directly employed within children's services won't know that social workers can only make recommendations to the court. And as with Finley, our recommendations have to be agreed with before actions can be taken and, you know, we're already really left with what the court give us. And adult services as well, or you're not in court so much, but you'll still have plans to, to deal with that you don't agree with. But we can often in social work, particularly in children's services, be left in positions where we have to try and create and enact plans that we know are unsafe. And this is the exact situation you saw here with Finley's social worker. They had advocated for a six-month return. They've been said, told, no, you have to do this in eight weeks in the middle of lockdown, and they've got to try and make that work. That's a very, very difficult position to put a social worker in, isn't it, Tilly, to say, right, we know you don't agree with this plan. We know you don't think it's safe, but you're going to have to do it anyway. What chance has the social worker got in that position? Well, none at all. Um, we do have uh, kind of similar things in adults, but I suppose to less extent, most of the time it's around um, a person moving back home after they've been in hospital and ca or a care home and they object to being there and and everything is done possible to try and get them home sometimes we might not necessarily agree but other times we just kind of have to to do it if that's what's ordered by the court but it's it's really really difficult um i mean i yeah i mean you've got more experience of this in children's services than i have i, I was never involved in in this part of children's social work, I was at the front door referral and assessment. So I never got to see these sorts of cases through. So perhaps you've got um, more perspective than I have. Yes. I mean, the short answer is it's incredibly difficult. It's incredibly difficult. As for the long answer, I understand that social workers only have one voice amongst many in the family courts. So let's take Finley's case, for example. In terms of parties to proceedings, you've got four. You've got mother, represented by their legal representative. You've got father, represented by his legal representative. You've got the local authority, who will be represented by a legal representative. Sometimes there'll be an in-house solicitor. Most of the time it'll be an external rep. 
And then you've got Charlie in this case. You've got Finley in this case, should I say, with Finley being uh, represented by his children's guardian and the children's guardian then by a solicitor or barrister. So you've got four voices in this case. And all of those four voices all have an opportunity to speak, all have an opportunity to ask questions, all have an opportunity to submit evidence and then cross-examine the other person when it comes to final hearing. You try and get you try and get agreement if at all possible. That's why you have advocates meetings before hearings, a couple of days before. That's why you are also always told to attend court one hour before the hearing starts in order to facilitate discussions. That is why you also have an issues resolutions hearing, which most people in my field of work will just know as an IRH. You also have that a couple of weeks before the final hearing. And for those who aren't involved in that, I don't know what it means. It basically gives an opportunity to try and resolve matters before the final hearing. So essentially what you've got in a case like Finley's, you've got four parties all working, sometimes together, sometimes against each other, all representing their views. Ultimately, you get to a final hearing and you try and thrash it out. And everybody might have a different position at that point, a wildly different position. For example, you might have a social worker advancing a plan of adoption. You might have a guardian advancing a plan of special guardianship with a family member that the local authority don't agree with. You might have parents seeking a return to one parent's care and the other one seeking a return to another parent's care. That's an extreme example, but you get what I'm saying, Tilly. You, you could potentially have four different parties to proceedings who all want a different thing by the time it comes to final hearing that situation isn't too unusual is it no it's not so that's why it can be incredibly difficult because ultimately the judge's decision sometimes it's before magistrates if it's sort of what you would class as more straightforward less serious cases but the vast majority of the time you're before a judge on these matters and it's the judges um the judges want to try and make sense of that and get a plan that is in the child's best interests. In this situation, it has been deemed that it was in Finley's best interests to return to his parents' care and to do that on an eight-week timescale. Now, evidently the judge couldn't have predicted this would have happened. Nobody could have predicted this would have happened. Because if the social worker could have predicted this would have happened, if they'd have even got in on those that visit two days before Finley died, they could have bypassed the court completely and sought police protection, couldn't Matilly? The social worker did not have to go back to court. They could have contacted the police, raised significant issues, and if the police agreed, which hopefully you think they would have, given the state of the home and given the drug use, that could have been taken out of the court's hand for a 72-hour period, couldn't it? Yes, it could, yeah. So, coming back to the point of the plan, yes, it's incredibly difficult when you're given plans that you don't agree with, but, and this is the key here, social workers sometimes do get it wrong. We are not infallible. And, you know, for every case that we hear about, like Finley's, where perhaps a judge went against the social worker's recommendation and enacted a swifter than recommended rehabilitation or went with a return to parents' care when a social worker's advocated against it, would it potentially be fair to say that there are other cases where the judge got it spot on and things turned out well, but of course we never hear about the happy stories is that, is that fair for me to say, Tilly, without criticising social workers? I am one. You are one. Our listeners are, are them too. But social workers don't always get it right in the courts either, do we? 
no and, and no one can get it right all the time we yeah. we are not we don't have superpowers that can read minds and predict the future we have to go on the evidence that's in front of us and we all have our own biases and we all see things in different ways so it's an incredibly finely nuanced judgment whether you're a, a judge in the case or yes. a social worker or a guardian or, or whoever it is you're all going to see things from a different perspective and we can therefore be left with plans that we might not have agreed with but we have to have the humility and the ability to try our best anyway don't we we do yes so how do we balance strengths-based practice and wanting to keep families together with avoiding misplaced hope and too much optimism? Because that's essentially what you had here, didn't you? You had the strength-based practice idea of wanting to keep the family together, of will anything else do aside from adoption? And on the other hand, you've got the idea of wanting to avoid misplaced hope and not going with the rule of optimism. How do you balance that, Tilly? How do you balance that risk aversion with realistic optimism? Well, it's an incredibly hard thing to do. And you just have to go with the, the evidence that you've got before you that is going to be imperfect. And I think probably what compounded some of these issues in this case is that during lockdown, yes. there was this excuse that people were using, you can't come into my home because of covid I've got COVID and fortunately now we're at a stage where COVID's not so prevalent and we're able to to work in those those environments but at the time we were in a position where this was a deadly virus and who knows if that social worker had vulnerable was clinically vulnerable themselves or had other vulnerable people in their families and contrary again to what public opinion is that social workers can't just barge into someone's home if they are not invited by the owners or or the tenants of that property they're not allowed in unless they've got a warrant and accompanied by the police so for for some of the comments on on the article saying why didn't they just demand to go in and see the child you've got to remember that one we don't have the power to do that anyway um we don't unless you've got a warrant or you've got the police with you and two, actually, this was in the context of the beginning, early stages of lockdown where we were faced with a, a deadly virus and people were terrified. Yeah. And and look, we've seen that with a few serious case reviews recently, haven't we? We saw that with Arthur Labinjo Hughes. We saw that with Star Hobson. And we've seen that with this as well. All children murdered by their parents or carers and all three of those cases lockdown and COVID aversion was given as a reason for poor engagement. It is difficult though, Tilly, it is difficult balancing that optimism um, with risk aversion because, you know, of course, of course you want to work with parents. Of course you do. We wouldn't, if we didn't believe that people could change, we wouldn't be in this job. And you can't go out there believing that every single family that you work with is capable of killing their own children. Yes, you do have to think the worst possible. You have to have a suspicion of, well, look into this, but you can't go out there with the belief that every single parent's a murderer, therefore you've got to remove all children. It has to, as you've said, be evidence-based. And look, I don't want to say that families should never be given the chance to change or improve. You're far from it. 
What I do want to say is that we must be cautious not to let optimism cloud our judgment and, and not always prioritise a birth family's reunion over child safety. Look, of course, of course, we have to look at that if it if it is all if it is at all possible. Now I'm now I'm slurring my words as well, Tilly. I think we've both I think we've both been on the overnight <laughs> wine both and of us tonight. Yeah, yeah, heavy story, man. It's a heavy story. It's a tax him. Um, but I do hope that Finley's story will spark a broader conversation about how, or how we can better protect vulnerable children who else could be visiting how often could we be visiting what else could we do if we ever face a lockdown again in future could we have more powers can we get special powers where we can force entry to homes with the police if it's in certain rehabilitation plans like this you know could the courts potentially enact an additional power where parents have a legal right where they have to let us in because that that could work realistically in this situation like this you could say right well the child is going back to parents in the rehabilitation plan we believe it's very risky if parents miss more than one day in a row then you've got the right to remove the child. Things like that. That that's not too far fetched to put something like that in place. Surely, Tilly, we've surely got the the sort of means to tweak legislation slightly to put something like that in. Because ultimately, I'm going to sound a bit draconian saying this, but if parents have got nothing to hide, they should be opening the door to social workers. And in this situation, they didn't open the door to social workers. And why was that? They had something to hide. There are things that you could potentially enact quite easily with the right legislative changes that could give social workers more power. Yeah, and that might be a decision that's made in, in light of this. I suppose we'll have to wait and see what the recommendations are from the serious case review. But certainly I think that's not too far beyond the realms of, of probability, really. That's what we need. We definitely need more power because, look, optimism is good, but... It mustn't rule over the evidence base and it mustn't prevent us from being inquisitive and having that inquisitive nature. That professional curiosity is so very, very important. Now, we're going to end on a big one here, Tilly. How can we help prevent such tragedies from happening again? Or, conversely, must we accept that we'll never save every child no matter what we do? Or can we do both? Think, can we get better, yet at the same time accept that we can't save every child? Yeah, I think it's a bit of both, isn't it? I mean, we're never going to be able to save everyone. And I think that that's a bitter truth that we all have to come to terms with. Sometimes people are going to die at the hands of others, and that's just a fact of human nature. But equally, I think there are things that we can improve, Um I think certainly by allowing social workers more time with children and families, taking away some of this bureaucracy so that they can actually focus on getting the views of the child, gathering that evidence from the people that are involved in that child's life. There, there, are, there are many things that have been recommended over and over again, yet are still not enacted because social services are stripped to the bone and there are simply not enough social workers to do the job caseloads remain too high and there are not enough things like early intervention and resources to help families in need. It's a good point about caseloads, Tilly, because imagine if, and again, this is just imagining, just to be clear, everybody, this is just speculation here. 
And that's why I said it at the start, and I'll say it again now, we don't know the exact details. We won't know the exact details until the serious case review comes out. And even when that happens, it won't possibly cover anywhere near everything about this child's life. But Tilly, let's imagine that the social worker involved in supporting Finley during the last days of his life had an average caseload of most social workers, which I imagine in child protection currently around 25 Let's imagine that the social worker had 25 cases. Now, let's imagine they've got 25 cases. This is two days before Christmas. They've attempted a visit. It's the height of COVID. They are having to manage a plan which they didn't agree with, which they think is unrealistic. They're doing the best. They're visiting two days before Christmas. Family have said they've got COVID. The local authority and government advice is to stay away from people who's got COVID. That social worker, I imagine, with plenty of other work to do, is probably going to be at a loose end in terms of what more they could do. That's speculation, Tilly, but is that realistic speculation, would you say? Is that fair for me to say? Very fair, yes. Now, imagine that social worker had 10 cases instead of 25. What more could they have done for Finley in this situation? Again, just speculating, but do you think they could perhaps have given that situation more attention? Of course they could have. I mean, they could have tried visiting again or or looked into it a bit more or just had that headspace to reflect and have a chat with their manager, their colleagues, other people that are involved with the case, get some legal advice, maybe ask the police to do a welfare check. There's, There's so many more things. I'll tell you what I would have done. If I had only 10 cases and I had, you know, imagine I had that whole day, I didn't have another five visits to do to get on the system because my manager was briefing down the, my neck about visits being on. And I knew that I was going to be on the KPI list and we're having, we just had 10 emails in a row from senior management informing us that our visits all had to be done before Christmas. Uh, if you didn't have that pressure and you had that time, I would have just sat in my car outside the house and waited a couple of hours, stake the place out. You could have done something like that realistically, couldn't you? Of course you could have. Yeah. There's so many more possibilities open to you. But it's probably... Very, very hard to think, well, do you know what? I'm going to sack off all my other visits that I've got to do this day. I'm going to not do my paperwork. I'm going to get in serious trouble. I'm not going to go and see the other families who I'm being told I have to see before Christmas because they're an emergency. And, you know, how how many other high-risk cases like this could this social worker potentially been managing? You know, when everything's a priority, nothing is. And I think that is a key point to make here, Tilly. When we are told in social work that everything has to be done yesterday, it makes it very, very, very hard to prioritise the things that really matter. Because if we're told that paperwork's the most important thing, getting your visits on the most important thing, making sure you're Ofsted compliant is the most important thing, making sure you've done your GDPR training is the most important thing, making sure you're on the back-to-basics assessment mandatory training is the most important thing, making sure that you've donated to the local Macmillan coffee morning is the most important thing. And any one day in social work, you are bombarded with about 20 urgent tasks. I mean, God knows how many urgent tasks you get in your job Dilly, but just give us an insight <laughs> how many how many times a day roughly are you given something which it demands to be done immediately and demands to be your most important thing I think a good 70 to 80 percent of my there work has urgent marked on it I there mean it, it loses its 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 meaning doesn't it exactly. if people ring up and say I've got to speak to you urgently I pretty much just think 
yeah that's not urgent even though it probably is and that's uh, a terrible attitude but actually that's just survival I mean as you say if you if everything is a priority nothing becomes a priority and you just try and keep your head above the water and if we put ourselves in this social worker's position and imagine that they did have 25 cases you can easily see how well okay my last visit was fine um Christmas is coming up. It's my last working day. They've perhaps visited late in the day. They've got another five visits to do, which are all urgent. They've got to drop a food parcel off. They've got to get back. They've got to, um, you know, type up some visits. There's a section 47 to type up. There's some court paperwork to check. They need to go and do a duty visit. The student social worker has to remove a child. They can't do it on their own. When you've got so much demands and such a high caseload, you can see a case like Finley's, oh, well, the court's deemed him safe to go back. Clearly, my previous perception was wrong. You can see how with such a demanding caseload that more and more visits wouldn't have been done because they simply don't have the capacity to do that because something else would have to give, wouldn't it? When you've got such a high caseload, something else always has to give. You don't have any wiggle room to prioritise cases that are a little bit out of the ordinary. No. And if it wasn't Finley, it could have been another child. The next visit or the, the next visit after that, you just don't know. There, but for the grace of God, goes. That's the fear that every social worker has. Yeah, yeah, it certainly is. Um, we ran. I'm going to end on I said I was going to end on that one, but I'm going to actually end on this one because I want I want to end on this one because it touches all of us on mysocialworknews.com every Sunday we run a confessions piece um, if anybody ever wants to write one of those you can email us anonymously uh, via press at mysocialworknews.com or you can also drop me a, a message via Social Work World Facebook group or find me on Twitter your anonymity is guaranteed so we had a social worker who wrote one of these for us on Sunday Tilly in the aftermath of the news about Finley's murder. And the headline that the social worker wrote was, I'm scared of going into work tomorrow because I'll be blamed for the death of Finley Borden. And basically this article was, uh, I'm just going to read out a, a couple of paragraphs from it. The social worker said, I've never met Finley. I didn't even know his name until the news coverage exploded on Friday and his short life and tragic early death became a national conversation. I've never worked with his family, and I didn't make the decisions that led to him being returned to his mum and dad's care. I don't even work anywhere near where he lives. But I work in child protection, and that's enough for some people to decide that I'll share the blame for his death. That really resonated with me simply because I cannot even remember the amount of times where high-profile child deaths have been thrown at me in an accusatory manner throughout my decade as a social worker. It's mostly Peter Connolly, who most people refer to as Baby P. And the general vibe would be something like you referring to me as like part of the, uh, you know, amalgamous sort of social work entity. Uh, You killed Baby P, you let Baby P die, you didn't even do anything about it. I've seen that so many times in my own career. And I read that when it was sent over on Sunday and I thought we've got to publish that because I bet there's a lot of social workers across the country this week who have faced stigma and blame because of what happened here. 
could you see that, Tilly? And when you were in child protection, did you ever get stigmatized with high profile child deaths that were nothing at all to do with you? Yes, I did. And yes, I still do. Even though now I work in adults in a mental capacity act service, it's I still get blamed for child death despite me not even working in children's services it's it's the realities of being a social worker we're all lumped together and people are angry and rightly so people I don't want to take away that anger because it's justified but it's misdirected this anger should be towards the the mother and father that did these heinous acts not social workers um, well said, my friend, you're totally right. And, and I think not to downplay those risks. And, you know, I, I read that anonymous submission and I did choose to publish it. But I don't think there's been as much vitriol and hate towards social workers on this one as there has been regarding previous child deaths, simply because the media have reported the facts that social workers did not agree with this fast rehabilitation and like you said earlier Tilly we are seeing that in the comments too so perhaps this could um, spark a debate in relation to what social workers need to do our jobs better as opposed to the same old debate that we've heard year upon year upon year of Social workers are rubbish and we have let children down. Before we wrap up, Tilly, is there anything else you want to say on this or should we leave it there, my friend? I think probably just one more time again, say rest in peace, Finlay. Yeah, same from me as well. You know, my condolences to anybody affected by this and rest in peace, Finlay. I just, you know, your tragic short life, you were you were awfully let down by your parents and I, I find it, I find it difficult to even call them parents you were awfully let down by people who would be referred to as your parents Finley but who did not give you any of the love affection and care that you needed and for some wicked heinous and evil reason prioritized their own needs over yours to the extent that they went on to suffer such horrific attacks against you I hope that you find peace now and you are in a better place on that note telly we will catch up with you next week we will see our listeners next week and until then it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me